Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Make sure you become Patreon supporters so you can hear the extended interview I do with Max Blumenthal. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Katie Helper Show. So excited to be here. We have a great, great show for you tonight. We have with us... um, Little independent filmmaker you may have heard of. His name is Michael Moore. Then we're going to have on joining us uh, two young uh, people who are not just young, but they are climate activists, uh, Alexandria Villasenor and Jerome Foster II. And they will probably knock your socks off. And they are the future. And they are actually doing things to make sure that we still have a future, which is always good to do. And um, I think without any further ado, we're just going to bring on the first uh, the first guest. Get this guy out of the way. You know him. You've seen his films. You've seen him on the show. Michael Moore. Hello, Michael. Hello, Katie. Thank you for that stellar and stunning introduction. I mean, do you I figured we would want to save time. You want let's say okay, Michael Moore, uh, Roger and me, uh, Fahrenheit 9-11, Fahrenheit 11-9. Uh, both of them, not just one, but both. Yeah. Uh, and um, where to invade next? Um, yeah. Big activist. Yeah. Help put Flint. Yeah. Help actually talks about Flint, Michigan, which is a it, it, actually sadly is something that you could say about probably what all of ten people who you ever see on on mainstream television, um, mainstream media. But um, Michael, welcome to the show. You Thanks also have. Of course, um, you also have a new Substack. Um, you also, of course, oh, I forgot this part. Host of Rumble, very, very good uh, podcast, which has how many episodes now? Two hundred. About two hundred twelve, I think, somewhere in there. Yeah. Wow, two hundred twelve. Wow. And um, tell us about your Substack before we talk about today's news. Well, Substack, uh, people don't know what it is. It's this new thing that's a it's a free platform mainly for writers. Uh, where they can write what they want to write and, and, and not worry about censorship or uh, mainstream media, the middleman. Um, uh, but also, it's, it's more than just that. It's a, it's a place to, um, uh, to have a civil uh, discourse. Um, and it's okay to be smart, or at least try to be smart. Um, it's, uh, I love reading. Uh, Patty Smith and others who have their own substacks. Excuse me. Um, Getting emotional just talking about it. Just thinking so, about it. Uh, whenever I say the words Patty Smith, I joke up. So you get reclaimed. Yes. Um, so so that uh, so I I write like a Sunday letter every Sunday uh, to the public about what I think about what's going on, and uh, it's free. And then of course I put my podcast on it. That's free. Uh, people can become paid members. Uh, like I know some others, you know, they have Patreon and they have other ways of, uh, if people want to be part of it and help support it, fine, but they don't have to, uh, there's no paywall for any of my writings or my podcasts. So, and it's just at michaelmore.com. That's all it is. Go there. Then I'll automatically put you on my, on my sub stack. I forgot to say, Michael is also, uh, are you forever or were you once an Eagle Scout? I don't know how that works. You, are you like always? Yes. If you attain the rank of Eagle, you are always an Eagle Scout. You can never say I was an Eagle Scout. So yes, I was. Uh, I just said it. 
I think now I'm gonna be I'm gonna be this part. Now you're excommunicated. Yeah. Eagle Scout, no more the first the first uh, cancel Eagle Scout. I convinced my parents to let me leave home when I was 14. Uh, uh, because I um wanted to be a priest. I was I was really caught up with the sort of liberation theology at that time with the Berrigan brothers who were um, big anti-war activists with Cesar Chavez and the farm workers movement. All of these things on the very kind of radical end of the Catholic Church at that time, and and so I thought, you know, I should go a step further here and, and go to the seminary. I convinced that my parents let me go, um, and uh, but within a year, I don't know. Part of it was the hormones kicked in. Part of it, I mean, it's fourteen years old, and part of it was I actually went down on my last day of ninth grade. Uh, to tell the head priest that I was out, I'm not coming back next year. I, uh, and and I, I, I had a whole speech prepared for him. Well, this is a woman-hating institution. That uh, this is uh, this is not what I want to be doing. I need to be out there in a different way, uh, working politically and all that. Before I got a word out of my mouth, the head priest um, says to me, um, "Father Dewicky was his name." No, that wasn't his name. Yeah, Dewicky. Dill wiki, swear to God, how do you make that stuff up? I'm not right. good. Um, so he says, Michael, I'm glad that you stopped in to see me because I was going to call for you to come down. We've decided that you should not return next year. And I'm like, I wait, I said, wait a minute, I came in here to, to resign. You can't fire me. Yeah, what the hell? Do you think yeah. they had word of it? Do you think they knew they were hip to your plans? No, no, no I had told nobody. Um, and, um, and so I, I said, well, I, well, you have to now tell me I'm not, I am not coming back on my own cord, but right. Why would you, what did I do? I'm, I'm obeyed the rules. I've, he says, really the reason we cannot have you back. And you can still hear his voice. The reason we cannot have you back is because you ask too many questions. That'll do it. And then, and this. Sorry. Um, then he and then he adds, and we, the Catholic Church, are an institution of answers. No questions. Answers. <laughs> that was wow. So uh so yeah, so I, I did that in my youth. Um, and then I became the youngest elected official in the state of Michigan. They lowered the voting age from 21 to 18. I ran a few months later and got elected to the Board of Education. And uh that's about all you need to know. Wow. Then you made a couple of films. Made a, yeah, made a few films. Um, and uh, actually, it was just, just before we started, I was doing this uh, uh, tribute. They're having a memorial uh, this weekend for the filmmaker, Kevin Rafferty. He made uh, the, the documentary, The Atomic Cafe. You ever seen it? Oh, yeah. No, I haven't, but I need to see it. It's on, it's, now I, really... Everybody knew it was a little duck and cover back in the 50s. He found all that footage. He was the first one to really put it out there in the uh, 1980s. I had driven to Ann Arbor. I'd heard about the film. I didn't like documentaries, but I thought, oh, it's an hour drive. I'll go down and check it out. The filmmaker's going to be there, meaning him, and, and Ann Bolin, uh, his, his co-director. And uh, I watched the film, 90 minutes of complete satire, taking down the whole idea of of nuclear weapons, nuclear war, uh, 
the U.S. being armed to the teeth and nonstop laughter in the, in the audience, laughing, of course, along with and at the insanity of our military industrial complex. And I waited for him afterwards. Uh, I wanted to meet him and uh, shook his hand and thanked him for this. I never thought a documentary could be like this. On the drive back to Flint that night, all I could think about was, God, I'd love to do something like this. And of course, I didn't, you know, I only had a year of college and I dropped out. I didn't have any film school. I didn't know anything about making a movie, but I went to a lot of movies. And I thought, a few years later, I thought, I'm going to do this. And we called him up out of the blue and said, hey, you know, could you, can I come to New York? Would you teach me how to load the camera a little bit? And he said, well, you know, you, you know, in the meantime, I had helped him with another film. Uh, he was doing, he said, you've been such a help to me. I and the crew will come back to, we'll come to Flint for a week and I'll teach you everything you need to know in a week, film school for a week. And that's what he did. Wouldn't take any money. Just came and came. Um, and they were, uh, and I learned fast because I only had a week. And then I spent the next two years making Roger V. Uh, he shot the first 60 rolls of that film, passed away here couple of weeks ago and so i was just recording this tribute to him and thanking him for i never ever would have made that film or any of these other films had he through his generosity and kindness um offered not only to come to flint to shoot the first part of roger me but to then uh when i had the film shot uh he had me come to new york and i stayed there with him and he showed me how to edit a film on the old film editing machines, what's called a Steenbeck. And I learned how to do that. And then I spent the next two years putting the film together with no help other than his help. So uh, I'm sorry to take your time mentioning him, but I, no, I want him to be remembered because he, he, he really turned the idea of making a documentary on its head and inspired people like me and others uh, to. Uh, to use uh, humor, um, as Errol Morris has done, as uh, there's a film called uh, uh, Sherman's March. Yeah. Back back in the day, back in the 80s, there were people experimenting with satire and nonfiction, and it was a huge inspiration to me, and it's present in all my work, thanks to people like Kevin. How old was he? He was about, geez, that's a good question. He had to have been at least four years older than, so, no, geez, he's probably eight years. I he's probably in his early 70s, maybe. Um, you mean right when he passed away? Yeah. He, um, he you know, the, 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 the crazy thing with him is that, so I knew him for these three years while I helped him with his film, and then he taught me how to make my film. And um, our edit room was in Washington, D.C., and so we were editing the film, and it's, inauguration day for bush the first and i said to the editors hey i've never seen an inauguration of you guys oh why don't we let's walk over to the wall shut down for the day let's walk over and watch the so we walk over the wall and of course there's not a very large crowd there for george the first but they did have the big tv screens and on the tv screen i can see kevin's walking around on the dais up there where they're going to swear the president is and i said look at it's kevin that's that kevin right yeah that's kevin wow he must have got a job shooting the uh a documentary or something on the inauguration I, I we didn't know but he dressed he was dressed really nice we only knew him as a as a hippie 
And uh, a couple of days later, I finally got him on the phone and I said, Kevin, were you at the inauguration? Because we swore we saw you at the stage. He goes, yeah, that was me. Oh my God. Well, were you making a documentary? No. What was going on? And I could hear him take the dray of his cigarette. He goes, uh, my uh, uncle is the president of, uh, of uh, the United States. What? George Bush is your uncle? He said, yeah, Barbara Bush and my mom were sisters. You, how come you never told me this? I didn't know this. He goes, you think so much less of him. <laughs> well, he said, because the way you're acting now, I don't want anybody to know. I don't tell anybody. And I'm sort of the black sheep of the family. So, um, so, uh, but yes, that, that and, and that's, and, and I was so blown away by this. Like, how small is the world that the, that the member of the Bush family helped me make my first film? And that's why I had never said a negative word about the Bushes since that time. Yeah, right. Uh, but, no, but, but then just to jump ahead. So when the film came out, uh, Uncle George, and the family, they knew Kevin had shot this new documentary that was out that Roger Ebert was raving about, blah, blah, blah. And they called, they wanted to get a print of the film because they're having a family reunion at Camp David that weekend. And could we get a print of the film? And of course, I tried to say, yes, of course, and uh, I'll come with it. No, that's okay. Just We just need the print of the film, Roger and me. So we sat on the print, and then I hear from Kevin, uh, the day after the screening, I said, well, how did it go? He said, well, it was very quiet in there. I said, oh, yeah. He said, they, most of them knew what you were up to. Oh, and me. Oh. He said, except one, there was one family member laughed throughout, got all the humor, laughed throughout. Oh, good. Well, so who? Uh, he said, well, you don't know him. He said, he's, a, he's my first cousin. He's actually the son of the president. And, uh, his name is George too. But, uh, I said, well, that's great. Then he, he's a, he's a good Bush. You got it. Yeah. He goes, no, 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 no. He wasn't laughing because of the humor. He was laughing because he doesn't sound. No, really? Yes. So the first time I ever hear about somebody named George W. Bush, I'm being told about his, uh, love of cocaine. And this is, I'm telling this is what, 1989? Um, so anyways, it, uh, it, uh, that's, that's the, uh, that's the, that's that old story, but thank you for letting me tell it. No, oh, yeah. It's a, it's great to with, the, with all the hell we're in right now. No, but, uh, it's important to pay homage to, uh, people who, uh, who help make the world less of a hellscape. Well, and help us. Don't we all have somebody in our lives? Oh, right. Yes. That did, whether it was a high school teacher or whether it was somebody that just, and maybe we were at a fork in the road and they just tilted us a little bit toward that one side of that fork and boom, you know, all of a, all of a sudden we have podcasts. Did you get to uh, tell him that, thank him that while he was alive? Oh, over and over and That's over. Great. In fact, I, I, I wrote a book of short stories, nonfiction short stories from my life is kind of a memoir, but not really, but so it's two dozen short stories, all true, but I wrote them in the style of a short story and I put it out about 10 years ago. It was called here comes trouble. It was the book. Oh, I have it. Yeah. Okay. So the very last chapter, the very last short story in it is called gratitude. And 
the word gratitude is there because of Kevin Rafferty. Because had it not been for him, again, I was well aware of the fact that you and I would be talking here today. Well, this is not set up. Here yeah. comes trouble. Oh, you've got it. Yeah. Wow. Thank God. It's a good thing you're not a liar. That would have been very embarrassing. You grab it, and it's like a story. And it's a story about being fired preemptively from the Eagle Scouts. Um, <laughs> yes, I, I, I was. Uh, yeah, 397. It's called Gratitude. Yeah. And, uh, and it goes. So this book goes up. These are stories from my life. Up until they are lowering the lights and raising the curtain on the very, very first screening uh, of Roger and Me at the Telluride Film Festival. And, and we'd all just taken our seats. Roger Ebert had just sat down in the third row from the back and three people down from him, unbeknownst to me at the time, but later told to me by said individual, three people down from him at the very first screening of Roger and me in 1983 is a guy by the name of Steve Bannon. And he told me when I ran into him here a couple of years ago, he was so unnerved by the film he went out found a payphone and cell phones back then called up one of his right-wing cohorts in dc and said we've we've got a big problem because there's some this guy is here from flint michigan with this film and when people see this we're all doomed because you know if the democrats listen to him we're we're toast because he's found the key to undo us. And it is with humor. Right. And um, and so and, and so Bannon says to me here a couple of years ago, he says, Thank God the Democrats are such idiots that they have not listened to you all these years. Everything that you've pushed for, that whether I agree with it or not, it's been right. The war's wrong, universal health care. Every civilized country has it. Uh, you've been right. The Democrats have run from you. They're scared of you because you actually know how to tap in to the will of the majority of the American people. And that's what we on the right have done. We think we've done it with Reagan and before that and after that. Um, but I just thought, boy, that's the end of us. People, uh, the Democrats are going to adopt him as their poster boy and boom. Uh, this movie and the movies like this, if he keeps making them, we're going to have this kind of impact. Thank God, he says, I was wrong. Mm. And um, and that you still are out in the desert when it comes to the mainstream uh, Democrats and the people that control the party because uh, you're a threat to them, too. You're a threat to us. We are a threat to them. Right. Wow. Well, Well, speaking, thank you for sharing that, by the way. Um, really fascinating stories. And uh, speaking of uh, Democrats being threats to um, not just Republicans, which if only they were threats to Republicans, but um, to sure. the people of this country, I thought we could. I, I know that you've been talking a lot about the um, infrastructure and reconciliation package. Um, and I don't know if you saw our good friend Joe Manchin had uh, some things to say today. Did you? Yes. Can we watch this clip? Oh, good. Yes, yes. Yeah, okay. This thing means that 
do you are we targeting the people that need it or getting it or the people getting it that maybe could do without and they're in pretty good shape so i said means testing i said work requirements those are all very very important in these things and that way you target children so you have the beginning of life our children pre-k yes then you have the end where our senior citizens want to live in a dignity and respect of their own home we can do that with some assistance and again some can pay some can pay a little bit and some can't pay any that's means testing it goes an awful long long way that way i'm just not so you know I cannot accept our, our economy or basically our society moving towards an entitlement mentality that you're entitled. Okay. I'm more of a rewarding because I can help those who really need help if those who can help themselves do so. So that's Joe Manchin, um, basically, uh, giving yet another reason that he can't support the reconciliation bill because he, um, I guess this time, uh, I want to I want to thank him for his candor. At least he's being more forthright than usual. Um, he's doing it in a way that displays that he's a. I'm saying this not Michael. I would say um, a terrible person. Um, he is probably thinking that he'll get away with it because, to be fair, people really do abuse this whole means testing idea. And what means testing means for people who don't know uh, is basically you don't get something uh, as a right. You get it if you test into it. So you have to be below a certain threshold to to have something. And, you know, there are some people who I think lit- like sincerely believe that that's a fair way to do it. But what means testing does is it actually uh, is um, very stigmatizing um, and makes things favors instead of rights. And uh, think about what we would do, like, with should we means test park entry? Like, should you only be able to go to a public park if you are? Uh, making below a certain amount of money. And if you care about rights, then um, you don't want things means tested, basically. Uh, means test the Senate, someone says, which, yeah, I think that's probably a, a good idea. But um, what what did you think of that uh, response from Manchin? Yeah. <clears throat> the, the founders of our public education system in this country that began back in the, in the second half of the 19th century, and when it finally beat, the government decided that all children had to go to school up to a certain age. Um, and there was this debate then of why, why should these public schools be free for everyone? Some people can afford to pay. And the founders of this uh, said, their point was, um, if we go down the slippery slope of trying to draw the line where you pay and you don't, this will wreck the idea of public education for all. We just have to say it, it's for all. And everybody goes, Plus, we also would, this is the way they thought back then, or the way it is now for wealthy people and wealthy liberals. Um, we, um, they wanted all kids in that schoolhouse. Uh, they wanted, they wanted the, the strata of the socioeconomic classes so that they all have to work together and be together. And up north, uh, in some states, uh, they even didn't racially segregate some of these schools, but in very few places, it, uh, was always a problem and still is to this day. So, so that's why, that's why you don't do that. You know, at the end of this, I don't know if you're going to play the other thing he said on top of that, he said, look, and this again, he was being very, very honest. I am not a liberal. He said today, I'm not a liberal. I've never been a liberal. Um, I don't believe in it. And, and he said, so my advice 
to you liberals out there who don't like the way I'm going to vote, elect more liberals. That's how you're going to win. And I thought, yeah, uh, thank you for, thank you for your support. Uh, because, uh, we all have to be very busy regarding next year. Um, forget about mansion and cinema for right now. We, there are open Republican Senate seats. In other words, Republicans are not going to run for re-election, or if they are, they're doing not so well in the polls in their states. But the Republican Tuley from Pennsylvania is resigning. Uh, the, the Republican from North Carolina, the Republican senator uh, from um, uh, Ohio, Portman. Um, then you've got uh, the crazy guy in Wisconsin, Johnson. He's up for re-election. I mean, there are four seats at least that unless the Democrats are truly as bad as Manchin thinks that they are, uh, uh, we could pick up another four seats next year if they got their act together and got busy um, and understood that the majority of Americans take the progressive left position on every single issue. Look at any public opinion poll. The majority of Americans believe that we're in a climate catastrophe. The majority of Americans believe women should be paid the same as men. The majority of Americans believe the government has no control over a woman's body. The majority of Americans believe that $7.25 an hour is not a living wage. In fact, neither is $15 now an hour. Go down the whole list. Our fellow Americans, and this is the good news, they are closer to what we believe it. We, meaning you and me, Katie, and anybody else who's watching that believes like we do. They're closer to us, the majority of our fellow Americans, than they are to Reagan, Nixon, Trump. And that's been a huge change. And a lot of it has come, come from young people. Reagan, Nixon, Trump, Manchin, Cinema, Gottheimer. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're really the minority now. Nancy Pelosi knows this. That's why she hasn't gotten out her, her uh, you know, whatever they used in school to give you the swats. She hasn't swatted down the, the swad this week or the progressive Democrats because she knows they really are the voice of this country. And oddly enough, they are the That's them, totally just helped. I mean, she has helped, you know, endorse their opponents and stuff and dismiss the Green New Deal. But, but yeah. No, all, oh, yes. All that, all of that up to this moment. But she doesn't know really what to do now with this problem because she knows she knows the American people. More than 50 percent, more than 55 percent, sometimes more than 60 or 70 percent. Take the progressive left position. Um, and who else knows that is uh, uh a guy by the name of Joe Biden, uh, uh, a centrist, a moderate, a corporatist, if there ever was one, through his entire career, um, uh, on the road with Bernie uh, at the beginning of last year. We never saw Biden in these early states. He didn't campaign. There was no crew, staff, yard sign, nothing. And, uh, and that's why Bernie won or tied those first three primaries and in, in, in caucuses. Because Bernie was the voice of what the American people want. For whatever reasons, we don't need to, we don't have the time tonight to study this, but we will hopefully someday. You'll come on the right podcast. Uh, but what has happened is, is for some reason, Biden, in his wisdom, has decided if I lean right, I lose. That's not the country anymore. He figured out that the majority of this country now, uh, the majority is either women people of color, or young people under the age of 35. You put those three groups together or, or combinations of them, 
you're you're talking 55 to 60 percent of the country now that is not white and male and old so this is all this is good news but that's why mansion says when he says you know put up or shut up to you lefties get out there and elect somebody next year yes sir you bet because you and Kirsten Cinema are not going to hold things up again. Things that the people of this country need. Yeah. I mean, if today I had on um, David Sirota and we were talking about how we these ideas are popular and they do yes. uh, pull well. The sad thing is that we have politicians who are not beholden to their voters, um, to their constituents. And, you know, I don't know what the solution is. Like you said, we're going to have to have another do a deep dive into that. But um it is depressing. And what what do you think will happen? Do you have any predictions? Right now, and I obviously could be very wrong, Biden has gotten away with a lot of shit uh, in his first eight months. I mean, I'm stunned. I'm, I'm stunned that um, with the stroke of the pen, what he did was to bring, in the process of bringing child poverty, cutting it in half. Um, He's, he's done things that I think most people have even heard about because we've been so consumed with the, uh, the coup attempt, COVID, climate, uh, the, the big three C's that we're having to deal with. We haven't noticed on the news that he took the first step to eliminating student loan debt for college. He got, he, he, he did, it's not a big step, but it's, it's significant in the sense this shows where his head's at. Um, he eliminated student loan debt for all disabled Americans. Uh, if you're disabled um, and you're going to college and you've got a student loan, it's forgiven. Wow. You know, and I've just been like, he got rid of the death penalty for federal. He can only do it for the federal government. So anybody in a federal prison on death row, there is no death row anymore. You know, he is operating from a very moral place. He's obviously thinking about his legacy. Um, he Really, he has that sort of, uh, uh, you know, grandpa, get off my lawn uh, attitude toward things. And he just doesn't care on some level, which is good, that he's just going to go ahead. And he has not walked back this $3.5 trillion bill, not one inch yet. Now, that's not to say he will do that in the next two hours. Yeah, right. But I'm yeah. saying he is, he's waiting for them to blink. He hasn't blinked. He has said, oh, come on, tell Democrats, let's lower this to 2.5. No, no, no. So if you're asking me what I think will happen, if not tonight, perhaps in the next month, uh, we may end up getting most of that 3.5 on some level. Because remember, the best way to lower that number is to give Manchin and Cinemas and cover. Not that I'm interested in helping them one single bit. Right, but, but make it about what they're, what, make it about what they're, they're, the people in their states need, right? At least... Well, if I were president, I would have gone all Lyndon Johnson on those two and and said, tell me what I need to do. I'll give it whatever you want for your states, not for you personally, not for your pockets, but I will give Arizona and West Virginia whatever they need. To force their hand at the very least. Right. But what, but what I think, what I think is going to happen here is that, um, uh, what Biden will do is this 3.5 trillion is for it's a 10-year package. They're going to cut the package uh, possibly in half. So it's for the next five years. And they'll cut that in half to uh, 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 2.5 or 2.25 uh, trillion. 
and it'll look like a big victory for the conservatives. Uh, when in fact, as soon as possible, they're going to start doing all the things they said they're going to do about childcare, pre-K, climate change, all these things, but just not in a 10-year plan now, in a five-year plan. And that's how it'll make it look like it's not costing so much and no one's going to club them for it. That's just what he gets. Yeah. I mean, he could be doing, I mean, th- there's a couple of things, right? So um, one is he could be cutting uh, student debt um, for all, uh, which he had. Yeah. And so he has, he has also, we've, you know, he has backtracked on certain things. Also, you know, it's interesting. So we were supposed, we, the reason that B- Biden said he could get things done, right? Biden was not the socialist, as he liked to remind people again and again. Mm-hmm. He was the guy who gets things done. He was the bipartisan guy. And we're seeing that these Dems are not falling into line. So I, I actually think an interesting question, I don't know if you have an answer to this, because I don't really have the answer to this, is, is it that um, the, this kind of bipartisan um, governing. I mean, I know it doesn't work morally or ethically, but maybe it doesn't even work politically because, uh, is, is that true? Is it, was it, is this just an intentional thing? Like maybe this is just cover for Biden. He can pretend that it's all mansion and cinema. Um, what are Pelosi and Schumer doing? And, uh, or are we just living in a failed state? There's always that option. <laughs> well, we are, the country itself is in, in a spiral in dissent uh, so that is that's a, again a, that's five other episodes of, of this but no i think that he i think i think first of all i think bernie has his ear and i think that they they pull they constantly pull and they know the country is far more liberal left progressive than they thought it was and he's probably counting his lucky stars that he got elected as a moderate um but, um, but he's there now and, and he knows the majority of us are with these programs that he's been touting. So it would be really reckless and foolish for him politically to ignore the fact that we are the majority and that we're going to call the shots on everyone. And that's why, uh, these, these, it's not just the squad standing the ground today. There's 50, 60 Democrats that will not allow his roads and bridges to go through unless they take care of the human beings along with them. So, um, you know, we'll see in a few hours, but, um, this is the best shape we've been in, in a long time. And I think the, the guy from Politico was saying yesterday that this is the first time he can remember where Democrats are so united. 96% of people on the left from, from far left to center left, um, are united on the issues in these bills. 96% of all, of all Democratic elected re- representatives are, are, are together on this. It's just these two in the Senate, and then there's probably a couple in the House that have been threatening. But, you know, we've never had it this good, frankly, and I don't know when. But we're not there yet. And it will only take our resolve. And I'm talking about the resolve of the left. They need to know we'll be in the streets. They need to know that uh, we're going to run our candidates next year. We're going to we're going to do things uh, uh, on the issues that are beyond electoral politics. The things that your next two guests are going to be talking about, we're going to be doing all of that, and we're we are going to be active, present, loud, and and you will regret not listening to the majority of your fellow Americans. That's who we represent. Yeah, 
Oh, another thing that Joe Manchin said is giving him um, pause uh, with the uh, reconciliation is uh, he wants the Hyde Amendment in it because it's very important for him that women um, who aren't wealthy don't have the right to have an abortion, basically. So, yeah, not not I know you you mentioned liberation theology at the beginning. Don't think that's really where this guy's um, Christianity is at. Uh, no, um, no, it's not. And, and, you know, he lives on a yacht. In the yeah. Valley. He lives on a yacht. And my first thought is, Dude, you come from a landlocked state. How'd you get the gap there to begin with? That's true. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't probably, and it's not from working hard. He comes no. from a political dynasty. His daughter has a lot of blood on her hands, literally the blood of children with di- when it comes to diabetes because she helped make uh, insulin less affordable and EpiPens less accessible, which is literally like some really ghoulish stuff. You kind of can't make that up. So he should be, in my opinion, embarrassed to show up anywhere. I mean, so many people, so many elected officials should be embarrassed to show up anywhere publicly. But you know who shouldn't be embarrassed? How do you like this as a segue? We're going to bring in our, 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 get enough with the old, all right? Enough with Manchin. I'm not being ageist. I'm just saying he's an old, he's old, uh, you know. Old his, school politics. Old school politics, exactly. Yeah, yeah. We don't, we, we don't have time for that. So we're going to bring in um, two guests. We're so excited to bring them in. First, we're going to bring in uh, back to the show, Alexandria Villasenor. So excited to have her back. And um, at the age of 13, no big deal. At the age of 13, Alexandria Villasenor co-founded the U.S. Youth Climate Strike Movement, part of the youth-led International Fridays for Future movement. Now at the age of the ripe old age of 16, she's become an internationally recognized environmental activist, public speaker, author, and founder of several more initiatives, including the climate education-focused nonprofit Earth Uprising International. Um, and uh, we're very excited to have her back with us. Uh, Alexandra, welcome back to the show. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here again. As if that wasn't already incredible. We have another guest to bring on. Ready, guys? Ready for this? Jerome Foster II is an environmental activist, voting rights advocate, and emerging uh, technology programmer. And um, don't hold this against him, guys. He was elected as the youngest ever White House advisor in U.S. history in 2021. Remember, we have to have an inside-outside strategy, okay? We need some infiltrators. Now serving on President Joe Biden's White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council, uh, based in New York City, but born and raised in Washington, D.C. He served as an intern for the late Honorable Congressman Civil Rights Leader John Lewis and as board member um, for the Washington, D.C. State Board of Education throughout his high school years. Uh, as the voting right, as a voting rights advocate, he is the executive director of One Million of Us, which educates and mobilizes young people to register and turn out to vote. So, Jerome, welcome. Hello. Hi, guys. Hey, it's great to be here. Of course. Thank you so much for coming. And tell us what you what you uh, were doing last week and what you are uh, getting ready for right now in terms of climate. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So last week was International Climate Week and we organized the uh, our climate strike on September 24th. And we had over 800,000 young people from 1,500 locations around the world turn out and say that we're back and that we're demanding climate justice. So this week we're seeing um, COI, which is the pre-COP event, where we're actually having youth voices seen on the international stage. And when prepping for COP26, we'll actually be able to demand what climate action from elected leaders. But also this week we're really standing outside. Um, so a lot of our movement is standing outside of the Capitol right now from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., demanding the passage of the $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill. So a lot going on right now, but we're excited. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that last week was a great way for youth activists and, I mean, everyone in the movement to get reconnected again after such a long year. And so I think, you know, International Climate Week really gave everyone this huge push of motivation. And so there's going to be a lot of action coming out of it. And what uh, what are your thoughts about how we move forward in terms of uh, electoral politics, uh not pursuing electoral politics, pursuing electoral politics, organizing. How do you balance, you know, the the need to move quickly, given the state of the world and the earth, with also working kind of within the system? Um, I think that when we, you can go. You can. I think that one of the things that keeps us moving forward and quickly is the fact that there's so many youth activists and, you know, environmentalists all in different sectors of our society working because the climate movement is basically like this vast ecosystem where everyone's just working in a different area, like Jerome's working at the White House, which is so cool. And, you know, I'm working in education and climate education. And then, you know, there's other activists working on, you know, different areas of the climate crisis. And I think that all of those are really needed because, there's not one way that we are going to get action. We need everything working together in order to get that action. And so I think that that's one of the ways that we continue moving forward is that there's someone just always working in a different sphere and sector of our society. Yeah, absolutely. Just building off of that, I think that really what is just so pressing right now and why we're seeing so much action and why we need change is because even in the context of like this week, this is a very short window for when we can make an impact. Because in 2022, we don't know what's going to happen. But we know that in 2020, young people organized and we elected Joe Biden together as young people, as people of color, as people first-time voters said, we believe that Joe Biden's actually going to do something. And this is opportunity to actually do that and speak up and actually keep with his promises. And right now with this infrastructure bill, that's kind of the last opportunity because this reconciliation bill might be the last time before we start passing meaningful legislation that can protect our lives, protect our future, and actually make sure communities have the protection that they need coming out of the pandemic and really be rebuilding from this this really tough time. And can you tell us about uh, the different organizations that you work with? And of course, Michael, feel free to jump in with any questions that you have, but Earth Uprising, um, also your organization, Jerome, and um, Alexandra, I know something I want to ask you about was yeah, the children versus climate uh, petition. Can you explain what that is and what the status of that is? Yeah. So uh, the children versus climate crisis complaint is basically a complaint where myself, Greta Thunberg, and 14 other children from all around the world filed a petition to the Committee on the Rights of the Child stating that five countries, Argentina, Brazil, Germany, Turkey, and France, were violating our rights by their inaction on the climate crisis. And so this complaint was really to hold those countries accountable. And the reason why it's those countries is because they ratified the Convention on the Rights of the Child, but they also ratified the third protocol saying that if they are not upholding this, then we can hold them accountable. And so that's exactly what we're doing. And so we're really hoping that this complaint in general also raises awareness to other young people, how their rights are being violated by inaction on the climate crisis. Because, I mean, for example, Article 6 of the, conven of the Convention of the Rights of the Child states that we have an inherent right to life, but with climate change, that is violating our inherent right to life. And so there's so many things in there that shows just how um, much our rights are being violated. And so this complaint has been around since 
September of 2019. So it's two years as of this this month. And so right now we've heard um, that the committee is about to render a decision on the admissibility of the complaint. And what this basically means is that the admissibility is a, a procedural ruling that determines if the committee finds our complaint valid or not and has followed all of the appropriate rules and has been filed in the correct courts. And so honestly, we really don't really know what to expect. <laughs> and so it's nerve wracking because this is the first time in history that the complaint process for the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child has been used this way. And I mean, previous complaints have always been made by a single child against a single country. And here we have a case where children from 10 different countries have filed a complaint against five countries. And uh, however, the law firm for the case, which is Michael Hosfeld, is optimistic in, a, in the way the case is written and presented. And so emissions from one country do harm children in other countries. And the complaint we've made and the harm children are experiencing are both real and valid. And so next week we'll have we'll, we'll hear the decision and know if we can move forward with this complaint. Wow. Katie, I have a couple of questions. Of course. Yeah. First of all, congratulations to both of you and all the members of your groups who are doing this. Uh, this is this is so needed. And, and without you, it won't happen. So thank you for that and everybody else who you're working with. Uh, let me just ask just a kind of a personal question. Just how mad are you at, at the generations that have come before you? Because, I mean, if I'm just imagining if I were your age and, and the, the uh, generation, my parents or grandparents' generation, handed me the world in the shape that it's in right now. And I'm, and I'm talking about the world, I mean the earth. The earth where, you know, I think a lot of boomers have, have thought for three years, yeah, we may not be able to fix things, but we'll be going. And now the last few years have made it clear we aren't going to be going. We are going to be here. We are going to suffer the tragedy that we've created. We thought we'd just hand it off to you guys. You know, give you, give you our best. A hug. Good luck. We're out of here. Kick in the pants. Yeah. A little kick in the pants, but, <clears throat> but I would just, I don't know. I would, um, I mean, I've seen it more actually from your age group, uh, which is, um, what, what's the new, the Z, uh, the, the yeah. Zoomers? Gen Z, I don't even know. The Zoomers and yeah, Gen Z. I mean, I'm, yeah, ignore me. I think I got it wrong already. Parkland, as the Parkland high school kids explained it to me, we're the Columbine generation. Because those who were in the school that day at Columbine, the majority of them, uh, either their mothers were pregnant when Columbine happened, or they were born in the year um, after it. And they've not known a single day in school without something, uh, Katie, that you and I never had to go through, which is called the active shooter drill. Right. That's the world we, part of the world that we've hit. So, so... The fact that we have so messed things up and that, and Katie knows that we talked about this and there's agreement and some disagreement on this, but I'm, I'm so, I mean, I was at the first Earth Day uh, back in 1970 as a high school student. And, um, and I had done my own little um, slideshow on pollution in the area around Flint. And I, and I tried to show it to whoever, whatever group would watch it. Um, 
I, and right away in those years after Earth Day, we got the Clean Air Act, we got the Clean Water Act, the EPA was created. And then that was it, essentially. And Jimmy Carter got elected in 76. He put solar panels on the roof of the White House. That in 76, that was a very new idea, very advanced thinking. And, and they were the old kind that it was just to heat the water. That's all he was going to do, heat the water in the White House. The first week that Ronald Reagan, when he came in after Carter, first thing he did was to tear those solar panels off the roof of the White House. And they've never been put back up, even when we've had Democrats. And, and we are so far gone now in terms of just imagine had we followed the example of Earth Day, Carter putting those solar panels up, where we'd be today some 50-some years later. We've lost 50 years. There was no other group that's fought for justice in this country, whether it's civil rights, women's rights, gay rights, go down the list. We are better off than we were 50 years ago. We're not where we should be. But if you are in love with somebody of your gender, you can legally get married to them. Uh, nobody ever thought that would happen. I mean, there has been, there's been progress. There has been no progress as far as I'm concerned when it comes to where we should be 50 years after Earth Day. And I have to put that on me, uh, environmental leaders, some, some environmental groups, some who've gotten into bed with corporations, with Wall Street, who've, who thinks capital, they think capitalism is the way out of our catastrophe or climate catastrophe. I don't think any of that. And I just wondered where you guys are at with that, that, um, and, and I don't, I'm not into, I don't want, I don't believe in this infighting that the left does and this fun doing. I don't care about any of that. I want to move forward, but I think we need new leadership and we need a new plan because we are doomed right now. It's so far gone. You mentioned the UN and then what they what they put out last month. Jeez, this is my friends. I don't know. I just, I turn to you and I don't mean to put that on your young shoulders, but I turn to you for, you are going to have to be the leaders of this. You know, uh, Katie referred to you as activists, which you are, but you're also citizens of a democracy, which makes the word activism redundant because it can't be a democracy unless we, the citizens are all active. If we're not active, it fails. So you are more than that. You are leaders. And I know you, know, you are humble people and you don't want to, but, but somebody has to take this. Some buddies have to take this. And again, it has to be, as I said to Katie earlier in this, in the show, um, we can't keep looking to the older white male people to save us here because they are the ones that help put us in the situation. Women, people of color, young people, that's the majority of the country deal. And, 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 you know, I'm just curious if you put any thought into this in terms of, you know, I'm not asking you to be critical of certain environmental groups that have gone down the wrong path or, or whatever, but I'm just saying, help me out here because there are not many people in my age group that I can make this appeal to because they're, they're so stuck in, oh, we like the way it's been since Earth Day. Okay, well, show me the results because yeah. you, can, you, can, you can start a group called three something or whatever about the number of parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere. But the, the, since that grew three, 350, right? Yeah. Uh, we've gone way beyond 350. The last I checked, it's 420. 
420. Is that am I right? Weed legalization is another issue, but sure. Oh, yeah, oh that, oh that too. I, okay. Don't, All right, can't help it. That is a that is a pothead trying to distract us from the real issues. Yeah, I wish I don't have the time to do that. Yeah, you're not there, and neither am I. But uh, kids, they'll do drugs, um, which should be legal. But don't do them. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna say I'm gonna call it 421. <laughs> the, there are 421 parts per million of carbon in our atmosphere right now. We are worse off since we formed some of these environmental groups. It's not their fault, but we we lack. The will, the strategy. Who's the Malcolm X of our environmental movement? You know, yeah. Who's the glorious sign of, or, or the Betty Friedan's uh, from the feminist movement of our movement, of the environmental movement? I mean, this is, we, we really need this. And what and, they, yeah, sorry. Yeah. And I, I'm just, and I, one just last reminder yeah. Martin Luther King, when he led the Montgomery bus boycott at his beginning, what was he, Katie? 24? I don't actually know. How old was he? Um, we can look this up. Yeah. Where my, who, who put my Google? Who took my Google? Where's my Google? My dad will occasionally say the, the Google's broken. The Google's broken. Yeah. No, but my point is, is that Jerome and Alexandria and others that, that we know of in these movements, I, mean, I love the names of both of your movements. I think that's it's solid and it's, it's exactly what we need. I'm sorry to put this on you, but where do we go and where do we find the leaders that we need of this movement or the organizations of this movement that are going to halt the madness? And we are in madness right now. Wow, he was like 25 or 26. Um, That's crazy. Sorry, I didn't even let that hang Crazy? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Sorry, Drew. He was 26, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think that you said that you turn to us when you think about the climate crisis. And I'd say we turn right back to you. It's like we're united in crisis, so we have to be united in our solution. Like when we think about the fact that we're all living on this planet, it doesn't matter how long you're going to be on here for. You're here and right now. And this is the time to take action. It doesn't matter if you're only here for two to five years. We need every single person, no matter if you are guilty about what happened in the last 50 years and didn't make as much impact as you wanted to. It doesn't matter. The past is right. gone. But Everybody jump us still here. We have- and I think that is what has to change is that... It doesn't really, it's like looking into the past and saying, oh, we didn't make the progress that we needed to. It's like, we can't look back there anymore. We didn't do what we we're supposed to do. And now we're having seven to nine years before we start having these massive changes that need to be implemented and done. So I think that what has shifted now on the conversation in the movement is that we don't have 60 years to basically do incremental changes. We need a system-wide, full-force, war-style, but peaceful in action mobilization of our communities and our infrastructure to in, inherently value the environment and not at every single turn work against it. And I think also what has changed now for our movement is that we are intersectional at every angle. We always make sure we're looking at indigenous people because they have been living in harmony with nature for thousands of years. They know through thousands of years of observation and, and research and just in, in kinship with it that they know how we're supposed to be operating. And if we never invite them to the table, we can never have genuine solutions about how we basically get away from this crisis. I think that when we talk about the intergenerational dialogue between between elders and youth, there's a unique point of unity because you guys have that knowledge of what it was in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s. For us, we were born in 2002, 2003, 2005 for Alexandria. And it's like, 
we just are growing up and thinking our future is not going to be here. We're studying for a future that's going to continue to stabilize. And even to this day, we're using 55,000 barrels of oil every single minute. That's, that's, our, that's our reality. And if we can't continue to pontificate about like, what is the if, if we did something, we just got to start taking action now and be right. serious about it and make as much progress as we can. I agree. And I and all people my age, we all have to be in this, in it and full and all in, in this. Alexandria, what, what, let me hear your thoughts. Uh, I saw the look on Katie's face there when Jerome sent what year you were born in. Uh, yeah. we went, like you were born after the Supremes. Uh, that's just how little time in the Sopranos world. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, I, I second everything Jerome said. And also, I mean, yeah, we are a traumatized generation. We've had active shooter drills, school shootings, a pandemic, and climate change. And now adults expect us to kind of fix all of it, which is not really possible. And actually, I wrote about this in All We Can Save, um, which is a anthology with women who are leading in the climate crisis with solutions. And one of the points I made in All We Can Save is that we need everyone, all generations, and the generations that have a short life to live and the generations that are currently going to live the longest. And there's just too much to do and climate change affects every aspect of our society. What we're actually saying is that the young and the most marginalized should lead though. We need the older generations to keep working but follow the, the leadership of youth, women, indigenous people, and people of color, people who know what it's like to live on the front lines of the climate crisis already. And that's usually what the difference is in decision-making. The people most affected make different decisions, whereas we make bolder, more radical decisions. And the greater the distance a decision-maker lives from the effects of the climate crisis, the slower and more incremental their decision-making is. Yes. Amen to that. What do you, what do you think about nationalizing the uh, energy industry so that we, the people control what is put out into our atmosphere? Any thoughts on that? I think the quickest possibility is just doing whatever we can. If it's, if we can do that within seven to nine years, we actually have to work on what is possible. I think that a lot of these things is like trying to figure out what can we do that like changes and overhauls that. But if it's, if it impacts frontline communities easier for them to say, Hey, let's just increase our, our national grid, what we have already and make it just more capable of, it, of housing renewable energy while we scrap everything and then do it all over again. That's what I'm thinking. That That's a right. That's, I, yeah, so, yeah. That's more. Because, because people are in such a state of emergency right now. Then putting forth an idea like let's nationalize the oil and gas. Uh, whoa, that was a good idea ten years ago. But right now, we how are we going to save people's lives, and how are the most vulnerable going to be uh, protected? Yeah, you know, I actually don't think we'll make the emissions reductions we need without nationalizing our electric grid, though, because we've got too much ideological conflict to continue privatizing everything. Yeah. Yeah, at least in this country. Yeah. We're right. The electric grid, geez. Well, we've seen what happens there. If, if we, the people, are controlling this, uh, if just the wealthy control it, if just corporations control it, the hedge funds that own these, these uh, semi grid operations that we saw, like in Texas, 
Wow, that's just not no, that's anymore. Not, yeah. Did, yeah. I also know that something that you mentioned, um, Alexandria, and I know you're keen to talk about more, is the kind of um, commodification and the greenwashing um, that we see. And you, in fact, on the last the last time you were on, you mentioned how uh, the fossil fuel industry likes to use these little phrases or expressions like, uh, you know, watch your carbon footprint. What's the size of your carbon footprint that put all of the focus on um personal responsibility and how how dangerous that is could you guys talk about that and and if you kind of saw through that immediately or if you were initially kind of like seduced by it because it the marketing for that is so um omnipresent Mm -hmm. yeah uh greenwashing is exactly what what you're talking about and i think that when i was younger before i got involved in climate activism i definitely did fall for it of you know what is my carbon footprint? Just reduce, reuse, recycle. And that was all I really knew about the issue. And then I started to, you know, understand more and research more. And then that's how I found out that, you know, the idea behind what's your carbon footprint was um, an individual action was something that the fossil fuel industry actually came up with to make you, the consumer, feel guilty instead of themselves. And so now the fossil fuel industry is placing ads next to environmentalists on social media. And so after climate scientists posts have, you know, Exxon ads following them. And so it's interesting how, you know, we see the conversation of the fossil fuel. They're trying to change the narrative still. But I think now what's happening is that youth activists and I mean, environmentalists everywhere know what's happening and we're calling it out and calling out their greenwashing so that they can't change the conversation anymore. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. And building upon what Alexandria just talked about is that a lot of what we are framing around greenwashing is just basically saying that it's your fault that you're polluting. When we were just handed these products, we're just living our lives, just saying, oh, I want to get something to drink to not have a water bottle. And I want to order a sandwich. Now I have plastic. And now when I want to go out and just get another drink of like, say, Coca-Cola, oh, now I got this big old bottle of Coca-Cola sitting here. And really, we didn't ask for any of these things. We're just living our lives. We're going to school, going home, doing homework. But these companies are the ones that produced it. And then they say, once we have it, it's now our responsibility. But we didn't make this product. We could very well use a recycled um, product if we wanted to, but it's not an option for us. And especially for communities that front lines and communities that live in food deserts, all we have are access to local convenience stores that don't even have real food, but only like snacks that are constantly wrapped in plastic. So I think that when we think about a person's responsibility, I have to think about the fact that it's very kind of privileged to be able to live a plastic-free life because the majority of the world can't even do it. Even in the context of America and Europe, few of us can even live plastic-free because of the fact that plastic is everywhere. So we have to demand companies change their systems to actually use recycles, recyclable materials and also be accountable through the entire life cycle of that product. So if we see, um, say, Coca-Cola again at the beaches, we're saying Coca-Cola is your fault. You're cleaning up and you're, you're having to pay reparate, climate reparations to the communities that you're continuing to devastate. So I think that, ha- that conversation has to change away from personal impact to actually corporate responsibility for the products they create and put it into people's hands. Yes, just really quickly want to, sorry, really quickly just want to interject because I don't want to forget R.I.P. Myron Dewey, who is a um, Native American activist, uh, documented a lot of um, important stuff 
and uh, attacks on water protectors and environmental activists, and he died in a car crash. So thank you, Lisa, for pointing that out. So sorry, uh, Alexandria, what were you saying before um, I interrupted you? Yeah, uh, I saw someone say that they were seeing BP ads, and that's actually one of the main greenwashing campaigns that I see BP put out this this calculate your carbon footprint tweet a while back, and it was subtweeted and I saw it ratioed and... I think that that's a great example about how they were trying to blame the consumer. Instead, people were like, no, what is your carbon footprint? Yeah, good dodge. Nice dodge. What is your, you know, setting up a, what do they do in the um, Gulf of Mexico? What is your setting fire print? Oh, the water on fire? Yeah. What's your setting fire to kill it? And all those like oil soaked animals and yeah exactly and now they want to become solar barons and they're oil baron now they want to become like the next generation it's like no we're actually going to own our energy actually be able to create ourselves and not have to be beholden to companies that have no moral background they're just there for the profit so yeah hey uh katie uh oh i know i was only supposed to be on until eight o'clock so thanks for letting oh yeah stick around and talk to of course yes alexandria and jerome um Thank you again, both of you, for what um, what you're doing, and um, and and stay on them because they won't. Uh, the greenwashers are going to try to get away with this, and uh, it's um, it's not right. We won't survive this unless we all band together and fight. We have to really fight this. Uh, the the people, greed mongers, are not going to go away. They're always going to put themselves first. Wall Street, corporate America, all of that. Our economic system, capitalism, it's, it's not fair, it's not just, and it's not democratic. If we are going to call ourselves a democracy, we have to have a democratic economy too. Uh, otherwise, the, the gap between the haves and the have-nots will only grow larger, and our earth will collapse. And uh, I will not stand by and let that happen. So I join with you. Whatever you're doing, I support you and anybody else out there. Katie, thank you for having this wonderful podcast and giving voice uh, uh, to people like Jerome and Alexander. Thank you for that. Yeah, thank you, Michael. Yeah, and we'll check you. in with you soon again. I hope. Okay. Yes, please. And uh, and uh, and I'll have you guys. Uh, I'll have you come on my podcast too uh, one of these days. It'd be great. Oh yeah. To talk to you some more. Katie is is already in the. How many times have you been on now? Two. Only once. Only once. Oh, we have to fix that. Yeah, we got to fix that. Yeah. There's a small club now. Those that have been on two or three times. So we'll have you come on. Anyways, uh, please keep this conversation going and everybody watching and listening. Uh, uh, no retreat, no surrender, no cutting corners. All in, all of us, all of us. So thank you, everybody. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Take care. Right. It was really nice to meet you. It was very nice to, uh, to meet you. And Katie will explain the Sopranos to you later. Yeah, I'll explain. Yeah. yeah. It's this thing that you sing at. It's a level of singing. Yes. Okay. Tenders, Sopranos. Um, no, my God, this is so amazing, though, right? That, that Michael does the Jewish goodbye, just like as as well I, as a Jewish person like me. Trying to close the thing, and I'm like, no, I just want to say one more time that that what you're doing, the two of you and all the other others in your generation, uh uh, it's not just you're the hope, and it's not just that you're the future. You are kicking butt now, and it has to happen now. 
and and we the older people will follow you, and then we will put in what we've learned to know and how not to what to avoid so you don't make our mistakes. But onward. So all right, uh, I don't have anything in Yiddish to offer here. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, oh, what can I say? Uh, thanks for being a mensch. Where these are menches. This is the mensch corner. Yeah. Mencho. Take and care. Now. <laughs> Bless you. Bye. So, guys, just so you know, a Jewish goodbye. Um, I'm Jewish, but I'm like a Bernie Jew, so I'm not religious. Just to give you a sense, that's that's what I the term I use is a Bernie Jew. But a Jewish goodbye. There's a joke. So, what's the Jewish goodbye? A Jewish goodbye is well, actually, I ruined it. Let me tell it the other way. What's an Irish goodbye? An Irish goodbye is when you uh, leave without saying goodbye, and a Jewish goodbye is when you say goodbye without leaving, which is what I always say I do on my shows because we we talk for a long time. That was the joke, and that's why I said that to him. Anyway, you learn something new every day. You learn from your elders, from your altacacos, which means old shitters and means old people in Yiddish. Anyway, yeah, I'm helping you. Jerome moved to New York from D.C., so you're Yiddish. You got to up your Yiddish. So I'm, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. Um, <laughs> there's more Yiddish spoken here than in D.C., but there's a little Yiddish all over and everyone, too. So what else? Do you? I know you guys have been very generous with your time. If you have a few more minutes, would love to just hear... Anything else that you want to share with people, you want people to know about? Yes, I want to urge everyone who's watching right now to call um, the two senators who are not, are basically the 4% of Democrats that are holding up the infrastructure bill, that are basically holding up all the progress on climate action. Um, and that was the person we just watched the video from earlier this this um, this segment. So if you have a fact of, yes. I'm sorry. I yeah. was going to say the name, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I just say, yeah, Senator Joe Manchin, call his office. And give him a piece of your mind. Tell him why we need a three point five trillion dollar infrastructure bill, and say, "Hey, I was a voter, and if you don't do this, we're voting you out." We went to um, West Virginia about two months ago and went to his um his congressional district, and people were saying that if he doesn't do this, we're voting him out. So call his office, give him a piece of your mind. Let's pass this infrastructure bill. Nice. Um, should we call him now? We can call him. I can if you give me the number. You can coach sure. me. Do I have to be a West Virginian or can I just be someone who's a U.S. citizen? No, you can be a U.S. citizen. You don't even have to be a constituent. Okay, great. Let's see. What's the number? We'll call him. And What's the phone I number, Jerome? Um, actually, if you just go Google call your congressman, they'll give you that number. That's I don't know. I was up ahead. Joe um, Manchin. That's good. I, it would be weird if you had his number on the. That would be really weird. <laughs> All right, let's call. We can email him. We can call office locations. All right, I got it. it. It's okay. the number right here. Two zero two. Hold on one second. Let me put this on. Two zero two. Yeah. Two two four. Yeah. Three nine five four. Okay. Let's see. What should I say? All right, I'm putting him on speaker. Basically, you say your name. Your what? Your. Thank you for taking time to call my office. We apologize that we are able to answer at this time. However, your call is important, so please leave a detailed message with your name, address, and phone number, and we will get back to you as soon as possible. Thank you for calling, and have a great day. Yeah. Joe, it's Katie Helper. Uh, I think uh, it doesn't matter where I live. Uh, it doesn't matter my address or my number. I am a citizen of this earth. I'm a world citizen. I'm sitting here um, chatting with two People, one of whom is 19, one of whom is 16, and they are also citizens of this world. And we want you to stop being a putz, um, start being a mensch, 
And yes, I am calling on my Yiddish culture. And by the way, I know you're of Italian stock. So with the two of us, we have a lot of stuff in common. We can talk about that another time. But please do the right thing. Um, uh, I'm trying to be diplomatic here. You have a lot to answer for, sir. Uh, you and your daughter. Let's just say you have a, a debt to pay. Your daughter has a major debt to pay because we all know what she's up to. And we know about children, diabetes, insulin, EpiPens. And you know what? They say honey gets more bees, but sometimes you got to put out the vinegar. So this is the vinegar. Do the right thing. Enough people are giving you carrots. This is a bit of a stick. Uh, what else can I say about you? Uh, I think what you're saying about um, uh, the Hyde Amendment is shameful. And uh, what would Jesus do, sir? I know this better than you. That's a little embarrassing. What would Jesus do? Uh, abortion's not mentioned once in the Bible. Not either either one of them, not the Old Testament or the New Testament. In fact, the only thing the Old Testament makes it sound like they distinguish between a fetus and a human life. And I know you guys selectively follow that book, but whatevs. Um, all I'm saying is that uh, stop doing this. We can see through you and um, you just got to do the right thing. Um, or vote for the Build Back Better Act too. And and you know how you can do the right thing is vote for the Build Back Better Act. Recording time Okay. Okay. Thanks so much. Call me back. Call me back, Joe. Just kidding. Just vote for that stuff. Just do the right thing. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Wait. I'm gonna call him next. All right. You call next. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot yeah. that the offices. Um, congressional offices came at five thirty. Thank you for taking time to call my yeah. office. Is this? We apologize, but we can't okay? answer this time. However, your call will be better. So please leave a detailed message with your name, address, and phone number, and we will get back to you as soon as possible. Thank you for calling and have a great day. Yo, Joe, my name is Alexandra Bissonor, and I'm here with my friends Jerome Foster and Katie Halpert. What I want you to know is that I'm 16 and I'm not going to give you my address or anything like that. I am a citizen of this planet and I'm here to tell you that I'm terrified of my future and how we're watching the climate change right before our eyes. This summer, I had to live through triple digit temperatures in California and people in my community died. My friends on the East Coast were flooded out. The climate isn't going to get better and you have to do something to pass the damn Reconciliation Act, okay? And the Reconciliation Bill, you got it? Okay, uh, I'm going to hold you accountable to that. Yeah, that has so much impact. I used to be the person answering the phones on the other end, like about two years ago for another congressperson. And like, we have to tally up every time someone calls. Not, well, yeah. Very few people call. Can you do it? Can you give a model phone call for us? So people sure. can do it? Okay, guys, children are, I mean, take your pick. You have different, We Alexandria and I just laid out two different ways you can go. And we're going to see what Jerome does. This is like one of the best segments. I'm just like actually doing the work. <laughs> yeah, doing the work. Let's do it, guys. It'll be a great clip. Yes. I got to get uh, next time. I'm going to do this again next week. Every week I'm going to do a phone call and I'm going to come with the receipt. More, <laughs> more receipts than I did this now with the vague you blood on your hands. And then cinema. Thank you for calling. You have a great day. Hi, Senator Joe Manchin. My name is Jerome Foster II. I'm a White House advisor and I'm here to call you today because I am two months ago we went to your district and we held a rally of over 200 people because we need to pass the Build Back Better Act. There are so many people that are across West Virginia that deserve climate action 
fair access to housing, fair access to workforce development, and a plethora of other things that are, impl- that are implemented in this bill. But you refuse to stand with your constituents and stand with the American people. So this is a clear warning that if you continue upon this path, we will vote you out. Hear that clearly. We will vote you out if you do not stand with the people and act as a representative of young people, people of color, women, so many people that have voted you in and rallied for you. You will no longer have that support if you don't vote for the Build Back Better Act. So we're expecting to hear a response from you and we'll see if you stand on the right side of history. Have a good day. And if not, we'll see you in court. <laughs> I'm just going to throw that out there. there in the court of, of justice, yeah. Well, guys, this was great. Seriously, really great. And come back on and definitely want to hear more. Maybe you guys can be the um, youth, uh, climate youth leader stringers for the Katie Albert Show. You can be our climate youth correspondents. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I always love being on this show. Like, this is always the most fun, you know, hey. the best. Awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah, definitely come back. And everyone, check them out. Follow them on social media. And um, stand by, stick around, everyone watching, because we're going to bring in our next guest. And thank you again so much to Jerome uh, Foster II and Alexandria Villasenor. You guys are awesome. Thank you. Thanks. Now we're bringing in a guy, this guy, this guy. He doesn't have the youthful innocence of our previous guests. Well, you be the judge of that. I'm just going to bring him in. You know him. You love him or you hate him but you probably have strong feelings either way. Uh, he is the founder and editor of The Gray Zone, Max Blumenthal. Hello, Max. I feel so haggard after that segment. <laughs> haggard? Yeah, like, well, you just have these these nice, shiny, inspiring young people, and then here comes me, you know. Max, how are you? Thank you for coming. I'm good. I just wrapped up a Moderate Rebels with Ben. North- and boy, are your arms tired. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> want to have you on to talk about a bunch of stuff, including um, one of the, the things that you're that you cover and something that's ignored by almost the entire rest of the media. And that is um, Julian Assange. Then also want to get some of your insights into the latest in the Middle East and your insights into the Iron Dome vote, which was, of course, not which was last week. But I still think there there's a lot that needs to be discussed that wasn't discussed about it. So um, should we start with Assange? Can you give us an update as someone who was an early reporter on all the CIA's attempts to mess with, to use the euphemism, Assange. Yeah, well, Julian Assange is in jail. I mean, there's no update. We can't hear from him. We can, you know, Alexei Navalny has been able to give speeches to conventions, at least to deliver messages to conventions from his prison in Russia. But Julian Assange is incommunicado. And when his children go to visit him, they have their cavities searched like their mouth is not their their mouth is their mouth searched by guards in front of him and if he reacts the guards tackle him that's the kind of treatment he's subjected to on a regular basis so he's essentially being tortured and the whole case against julian assange has completely fallen apart in public view i i reported this pretty much the same story that michael isakoff and the team at Yahoo News reported this week on the CIA's use of a Spanish security firm as an asset to spy on, terrorize, and possibly or consider assassinating and kidnapping Julian Assange and his associates. 
Um, my story came out at the gray zone. So, you know, even though I was relying on internal communications from this CIA asset, which came out through a trial in Spain in the Spanish national court, where the director of this Spanish firm that was used by the CIA was basically put on trial for all of the, all of what he did to Assange, violating his attorney client privilege, um, committing fraud and embezzlement, paying off people to spy on him, all sorts of crimes. Um, you know, I got files from that trial that showed these plots that were described not just by the reporting of Michael Isakoff, but by his CIA sources, both former and current, who said, yeah, that's what we did and we considered it. It was discussed at Langley. Uh, Mike Pompeo was presiding over the whole operation. Um, there were a few elements that weren't in the Yahoo News story, but I took it as kind of confirmation high-level confirmation of everything. I reported back in May 2020, and there were also reports in the Spanish media, El País reported elements of this story. People you've hosted, like Kevin Gostola, have reported it as well. And so what we have here is the clear, documented fact that the CIA, I think I'm about to sneeze, it's allergy season, that the CIA plotted to kill a journalist because he embarrassed them. And he embarrassed the U.S. national security state. Uh, not just that they considered assassinating Assange, but according to Yahoo News, they considered assassinating his European associates. And that tracks with my reporting where, you know, I got the list that this Spanish security firm compiled of people to target with spying, uh, with stealing their devices. And this list included Glenn Greenwald. Uh, they were instructed to try to tie Greenwald to Russia and Russian intelligence and various other figures associated with WikiLeaks. I reported on the journalists who went to visit Julian Assange and how they had their devices taken at the door by people who they thought were simply security guards at the Ecuadorian embassy in London where Assange was um, given, a, was, was seeking asylum. Um, and they wound up handing them over to people who were working for the CIA. And so their devices were invaded. They, their devices were hacked into. Their personal information was taken. One of those people who had their devices taken was the Washington Post chief national security correspondent, Ellen Nakashima. I got pictures of her opened phone. I mean, these were kept in the, the files of the Spanish security firm, UC Global, that was working for the CIA. So they were all you know, in the possession of the court. So I published the photo of her phone. And what's, what's amazing about that is the Washington Post never reported this. The Washington Post never said, we were spied on by the CIA. How fucking dare you? Because the Washington Post relies on the CIA for its own sourcing, number one. And number two, the Washington Post owner, Jeff Bezos, controls Amazon, which has a $600 million contract to host the cloud for the CIA. So that's it's a heavy cloud. So that it's a heavy cloud. And uh, it's one of the heaviest clouds. It's one of the most vaunted contracts you can get in the tech industry. So why would you want to complicate that? And that these are reasons why I think the media has abandoned Julian Assange because they're going up against the CIA. 
I thought my story should have stimulated more interest in what really could have been a La Carre novel. It could have been a blockbuster Hollywood film. It could have been a Netflix series. I mean, it has all the elements there. It's a spy thriller. And it has, it has you know, a very compelling character at the center of it. But then you also have Mike Pompeo. And you, you threw my article up on the screen. Yeah, there's, I can a picture, there's a picture of one of one of the worst Jewish stereotypes that ever existed there. Sheldon Adelson. The uh -huh. late casino billionaire. What is he doing there? This is what was missing from um, Isakoff's piece, which is that as many of your viewers who know some of the history of the CIA would understand, the CIA often runs operations through third parties to give it plausible deniability or to They're give third it third party supporters. Yeah, this is the only third party that's really allowed in the US right yeah. now. Um, and yeah, so I, I mean, they took out Jill Stein, but this third party uh, was Sheldon Adelson, the yeah. largest donor to Donald Trump, largest individual contributor to Trump. Also, uh, an obvious channel for Israeli intelligence. And the the reason they do it is because they're operating outside of the public's purview. They're running a operation with public money through a private channel. Sheldon Adelson has a massive business empire in Las Vegas. Las Vegas Sands is a huge company that has its own security apparatus that includes people who used to work for Israeli security. And he has the former cyber operations director for the Secret Service heading his own global operations. So he basically had all the tools he needed at his disposal to recruit the firm that already had the contract at the Ecuadorian embassy where Julian Assange was that's one of Adelson's Israeli guards. He's surrounded by Israelis. And one, his top Israeli security director actually recruited the head of the Spanish firm and they became best buddies and they would go vacation together. And they were sending this guy, David Morales, the CIA asset to Las Vegas to get his marching orders. So it makes perfect sense that Pompeo is overseeing all of this. Pompeo was the CIA director. He's also very pro-Israel. He's a Christian Zionist. Right. Adelson was taking an interest in Pompeo's career and behind Adelson, Israeli intelligence. Remember, by the way, I mean, this is an aside, but do you remember? So Mike handsome. Pompeo? They're all really handsome. I mean, can you imagine uh, Sheldon Adelson and Mike Pompeo oil wrestling? But I don't know. Can I imagine again, you mean? Yeah, like a, a Newton massage. But yeah. anyway, that's disgusting. Um, I was gonna. Re I was just remembering that Mike Pompeo actually stated in a speech. Um, I think it was in the UK. He said, "If Jeremy Corbyn is elected prime minister, we will push back against him." Yeah. That really owes, in my opinion, to Pompeo's role in subverting U.S. intelligence to Israeli interests. In many cases, the killing of Qasem Soleimani, it was Pompeo and Netanyahu who were really pushing Trump to do that. And they eventually got Trump to there's. So there's David Morales on the left at this, um, yeah. at this uh, security conference at Las Vegas Sands owned by Sheldon Adelson. And Morales was kind of a nobody. He was like, uh, low-level former Spanish special forces officer running a security firm that had like 12 employees, but he had one of the most important contracts in the world because the Ecuadorian government had hired him to protect Julian Assange. And for the US and the CIA, there's him in, in you know on one of his trips to Las Vegas. These are 
internal communications I got um, through his trial. There's him with his wife, um, you know, looking at Trump Towers on the Las Vegas Strip. And uh, yeah, they look very happy. Moments of happiness because they get, they, they get to jet set around the world. And that was all thanks to the CIA. He was recruited in Vegas at the beginning of the Trump era. And after the, um, WikiLeaks released Marble 7, I mean, sorry, the um, Vault 7 leaks of the CIA, the CIA decided to take revenge. And can you just summarize what was in Vault 7? Well, the most scandalous revelation of Vault 7 was this marble program where the CIA was establishing technology to watch people through their smart TVs, specifically like Samsung smart TVs, and to watch people. Make sure you become Patreon supporters so you can hear the extended interview I do with Max Blumenthal. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper, Nick Palm, Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.